Julie walked into my office in the middle of orientation week, just before the start of regular classes. Her eyes began filling with tears the moment she sat down. She explained that she was from Saskatchewan, that she was going to be studying biology, and that this was the first time that she was living away from home, away from family, away from her friends. Almost immediately upon her arrival at the University of Alberta, she had decided to start connecting with the student services available on campus. So she found the chaplain's office where she met me. After our meeting, she had arranged to meet someone from counseling services. She said she wanted to have a good list of people to talk to for when things got overwhelming and she would need all of our help. My first instinct was to wonder at the wisdom of this young woman. Here she was already anticipating that she might need help along the way in her academic journey and was establishing relationships with those who could offer such help. But then a darker thought struck me. What kind of place is the university that makes this young woman assume that she will eventually break down to the point where she will require professional help to get through to the other side? A couple years ago, the University of Alberta Wellness Services put out a student health report. That report stated that of the U of A students sampled for the study out of the nearly 40,000 students at the U of A, 51% felt that things were hopeless. 52% felt overwhelming anxiety. 57% experienced tremendous stress. 61% felt very lonely, 65% felt very sad, 87% felt exhausted and not from physical activity, and 6.8% of the students sampled seriously considered suicide, with 1% making the attempt. The university is still coming to terms with this report two years later. One result is that for the first time, the university has instituted a fall reading week in addition to the the winter reading week, a reading week that actually starts right now, so students are now free of classes. Some faculties don't give reading week, which is unfortunate. But this reading week provides an opportunity for students to take a much-needed break from the rigors of academic life. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not suggesting that the university can't be a place of great joy and beauty and wonder, or that the university has a monopoly on pain and sorrow. But I'm suggesting that the university can be a place where pain and sorrow tends to be concentrated due to it being such a high-stress environment. To use the Exodus language of our text for this morning... The university is a place where people are constantly crying out for help, begging for someone to come and deliver them. Our text for this morning is about crying out to God and about God hearing and rescuing. Psalm 107 is a great liturgical psalm of thanksgiving for God's deliverance. 
the poem opens with a very standardized declaration that we see in many other psalms. Give thanks to the Lord for two reasons. God is good and God's steadfast love endures forever. These reasons aren't just random. The demonstration of God's goodness and loving kindness isn't vague or general within the community that wrote and then sang this song. The goodness of God is tangible. It's specific, nameable, even repeatable within the community. It's as if those who have actually experienced God's deliverance are present in the congregation and able to give testimony to the goodness and loving kindness of God. And I have no doubt that there are people in this congregation who could also testify to the goodness and loving kindness of God in our midst. For this reason, the psalm not only summons the congregation to thanks, it also identifies those who most readily and appropriately will give thanks. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And I could say, hey, can I have an amen? And everyone can say amen. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Those God redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Redeemed could refer to the exodus. But as we will see, the psalm opens up the invitation to thanksgiving to all sorts of people. The parallel line in the psalm refers to all those who have been gathered in. That is, those who have returned from the dislocation and displacement of the exile. The psalmist almost demands that those who have experienced such deliverance speak out. You must speak so that the rest of the congregation can hear about what God has done and give thanks to God with them. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes, the rhetoric of verse 3 of the psalm is inclusive and pertains to all Jews who have been brought home and to all who had lived through God's generous homecoming. The four-directional inclusion recalls Isaiah 43 verse 6, where the Lord seeks out the scattered. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The rhetorical maneuver acknowledges the God of all gathering. Thus says the Lord God in Isaiah 56, who gathers the outcasts of Israel. I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. These are the ones who are now called to give thanks to the Lord because they are the ones who know God's loving kindness firsthand. And I think if you're not hearing it already, you'll hear it when I say that we can hear echoes of Jesus' language of being the good shepherd who seeks after the lost sheep and gathers them all in. Right? Other sheep I have that I have to gather. God is a gathering God. A God who brings people together into community. And the result of that gathering is that we are to be thankful. And we are to express that thanksgiving. This opening liturgical declaration, give thanks to the Lord for good is He, His love endures forever. This opening liturgical declaration is followed by four case studies. 
The first case study is about those who are lost in the wilderness without any resources. There can be little question that the writers of this poem are thinking primarily about the wilderness wanderings during the Exodus. But the poem isn't limited to that. The psalm speaks universally and metaphorically into all human situations where we find ourselves lost, wandering, being drained of life and vitality the way a dry desert drains the moisture out of our bodies, out of our very soul. In 1993, the Irish rock band U2 released the album Zuropa, taking us on a tour of the barren wasteland called Zuropa. The opening track, the title song, begins with a cacophony of slogans from the advertising world. In the background, behind slogans for Audi, United Airlines, and SlimFast, just to name a few, one can hear a voice asking us, what do you want? The answer in the world of Zuropa is that whatever you want, the demigods of Zuropa of science, of technology, of economics, are ready to deliver. The sad irony is that these gods in whom we have so completely put our trust disappoint us time and time again until we're left with nothing to do but drone the words from the song Numb, also on the album. I'm feeling numb. Too much is not enough. Give me some more. It's the ridiculous voices of these gods that numb us, that steal from us any sense of direction and purpose, of boundaries, or any sense of God. And so in the song Zuropa, the lead singer Bono sings, and I have no compass, and I have no map, and I have no reason, no reason to get back, and I have no religion, and I don't know what's what, and I don't know the limit, the limit of what we've got. Or as St. Augustine writes in his Confessions, I sank away from thee and I wandered, O my God. Too much astray from thee my stay in these days of my youth. And I became to myself a barren land. This wandering, this displacement, this homelessness, this, this desert life is a condition I see all the time on the U of A campus. Now last year, for the first time in its history, the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, or NATE, sent out an invitation to chaplains to come and provide spiritual care to its campus community. With support from West End CRC in Edmonton and a member of this very congregation, you, the campus ministry committee started a one-year pilot project at NATE. Rick Mast, the youth pastor at West End, has been spending two hours a week engaged in campus ministry at Nate. Already, Rick has provided pastoral care to a grieving Nate community when one of their faculty was tragically killed in a motorcycle accident. He meets regularly with a Chinese student looking for spiritual direction, a staff woman whose family barely escaped violence in Colombia and is looking for answers. Rick has been such a voice of hope and comfort there that Nate has told him that he is welcome on campus beyond two hours a week. And Nate is exploring the possibility of having Rick and the other chaplains increase their hours from two hours a week to a full day a week. 
Truly, God is hearing the cries of the Nate community. Life can become a wilderness, a place of hopeless wandering from which there seems no escape. Sometimes people don't even realize how lost they are. When they do finally notice, they are often so far gone that no help seems possible. As J. Mary Luthi writes, afflicted by the restlessness typical of the affluent West, they wander from marriage to marriage, diet to diet, spiritual path to spiritual path, drug of choice to drug of choice. For the aimless soul, frantic with appetites, nothing can satisfy except the grounding, orienting love of God. The good news of Psalm 107 is that it's never too late. A way out can be had for a cry. Then those who are wandering cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and God delivered them from their distress. Their aimless wandering is ended when God provides for them a straight path to a great homecoming. This refrain in the song is Israel's fundamental expression of faith. Israel cries, God answers or saves. It's an expression of faith that's rooted in the Exodus, Israel's primary narrative. In that foundational story, Israel cries out in the midst of their oppression and slavery. They don't even know to whom they're crying. It's just a cry to heaven. And God hears their cry. God knows their suffering. And God comes down to rescue them. This is the heart of God's goodness and loving kindness. This is a God who hears and who decisively responds to the needs of Israel. Let those who were lost but are now found give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love and wonderful works in their lives. They were hungry and thirsty and faint. Now God has satisfied them and filled them. This first case study sets the tone for the remaining three, for the entire psalm, and for Israel's and our faith. Need, cry, rescue, thanks. The second case study takes us from homelessness and homecoming to captivity and liberation. Here, the metaphor isn't wandering or being lost. It's prison, darkness, and gloom. Evan Tran was a 21-year-old math student and was very popular on campus. He was involved in a number of mental health initiatives and even ran for a position on the Students' Union Executive. He struggled with mental health, but he was getting help. Evan was very sensitive to people who struggled with mental health. He was very supportive, encouraging people to take care of themselves, to eat right and exercise, to spend time having fun with their friends. Early in the morning of Thanksgiving Monday... Evan hung himself in the stairwell in the central academic building on campus. At the memorial service that we held for Evan, his family expressed both their gratitude for the overwhelming support they had received from the campus, but also their surprise to learn that Evan had any friends at all. You see, Evan had spent all of his energy on campus helping others, perhaps hoping that in that help, the void in his own heart might be filled. 
but it wasn't. He would come home and lock himself in his room, depressed and despondent. Evan's suicide shocked the campus. Many young people tasted death for the very first time. Prison can be a real physical place for those who we as society have either forgotten about or who consider undeserving of any mercy or compassion. But in the world I live in, people suffer in prisons of the mind, of anxiety, of depression, of addiction, and more. And beyond the bounds of the university, there are those who suffer with Alzheimer's, those who suffer from physical disability, or whose homes and apartments are like prisons. Or again, those in abusive relationships that feel like prisons. For all of these, life is sometimes nothing but hard labor, where every waking moment is a struggle to go on. They continually fall with no one to help, whether it's due to a lack of political compassion, a lack of education, or simply because we would all rather just ignore them. In our text, these people too offer up desperate cries to God, and their cries spur God into action. God saves them from their distress and brings them out of darkness and gloom, breaking their bonds asunder with God's mighty arm, looking back to Joseph's deliverance from the prisons of Pharaoh, and looking ahead to the book of Acts, where Paul and Silas are delivered from jail. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love and wonderful deeds. They were locked away, but God shattered the doors and cut the bars in two. The third case study has to do with those who are sick. The Hebrew word can also be translated foolish, as it is in our text, and suggests that like we read in Psalm 32, sin, especially unconfessed sin, can have physical implications. But I think we should also remember here those who are suffering from sickness and disease that has nothing to do with guilt or sin. Kelsey is a second-year grad student in paleontology. For years, she has been suffering with Crohn's disease. Last semester, her doctor prescribed her a new medication that will help with the symptoms, but as a side effect, greatly increases her chances of developing cancer later in life. Kelsey came to me distraught because she is terrified of death. She grew up in a Christian tradition that emphasized hell as the final destination for those who don't believe. And Kelsey is nearly obsessed with the idea that she isn't being faithful enough. Her Crohn's disease only makes her more fearful of her impending death. For Kelsey and others like her, their fear and despair is rooted in the betrayal of their very bodies. For these people and their loved ones, life has been reduced to waiting, waiting for tests, waiting for results, waiting for bad news, hoping against hope for some good news, perhaps most terribly, waiting to die. These too offer their cries up to God, and God hears. God sends out God's creative word, and healing happens. Let them also thank the Lord for his steadfast love and his wonderful works to humankind. The fourth and final case study has to do 
with the sea. This one feels a bit odd when compared with the first three until we understand what the sea represented for Israel and for many living in the ancient Near East. You see, the Israelites weren't a seafaring people. They limited their engagement with the sea by fishing close to the shore. The sea represents chaos and disorder, even death. When a storm blew up on the Sea of Galilee or on the Mediterranean, it was as if creation itself was at risk of falling apart. Recall the creation story of Genesis 1, where God separates the land from the water, establishing a boundary between order and chaos. So in Job 38, God says, Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the cloud its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed bounds for it, and set bars and doors, and said, This far you shall come, chaos, and no farther, and here your proud wave shall be stopped. Or Jeremiah 5, Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as a boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. This understanding of the sea representing the primordial forces of chaos is picked up in the New Testament stories of Jesus calming the sea and walking on the water. It's also why in John's vision of the new heaven and the new earth, there is no longer any sea. Not that literally there won't be a sea in the new heaven and the new earth. There will be. But the forces of chaos and disorder and death, that is what will be gone in the new heaven and the new earth. This chaos underlies all of the case studies in our psalm. Whether it's a sense of homelessness or the gloom of oppression or the despair of disease, what all of these have in common is a fundamental sense that the world is out of control and an overpowering feeling of total and utter abandonment by God. Jonah, pulling from the variety of psalms, expresses it this way. The waters closed over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet in the midst of this chaos and disorder and sense of abandonment, these people too cry out to the Lord. God hears them and delivers them. God stilled the storm and brought their reeling and staggering to an end. Then God brought them through the sea to safety. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to humankind. This ancient Hebrew poem expresses the dramatic movement of need, petition, rescue, and thanks that is the epitome of Israel's faith. The poem has stylized this movement so that it can be used in a liturgical setting, probably the temple or the synagogue, and now today the church. This psalm can now be sung and or read as an integral part of the worshiping life of the church. Despite the stylization, however, the poem derives from the raw, lived experience of Israel. That is, This poem speaks universally into the lives of people everywhere who are experiencing those realities the case studies portray. What all these case studies highlight is the desperation, 
the dislocation, the separation, the condemnation, the isolation, the desolation that is the reality of so many people today. The poem reminds us that we live in a world of threat in which God makes a decisive difference. This decisive difference is the deliverance of God that calls from us specific words and public acts of thanksgiving. God's most decisive act of deliverance in history is none other than Jesus Christ, who, in the beautiful words of the Nicene Creed, for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. Jesus is God's answer to the cries of the world, the groaning of creation. In his ministry, he healed the sick, raised the dead, provided food in the wilderness, liberated people from demonic oppression. He spoke God's truth and lived God's love. He drew to himself, gathered in the outcast, the poor, and those thought beyond redemption. He made them whole by his boundless mercy. By his death and resurrection, Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God, a kingdom of justice and peace and hope and love. He gathered around him a group of men and women, the new Israel, called by God and anointed by God's Spirit to bear witness to the love of Jesus and the power of God to provide deliverance to all of creation. It is this covenant people, the church, who have become the means by which God provides deliverance to all who are crying out from the midst of their wanderings, their imprisonment, their sickness, the chaos of their lives. Jesus tells a story about these people, a story that has its roots in Psalm 107. In fact, Jesus may have had Psalm 107 in mind when he told this story. When a son of man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these members of my family, you did it to me. The university is a wonderful place. A place where affirmations are made, questions asked, answers found, doubts respected, quests continued. A place where skills are learned, sympathies broadened, convictions deepened, visions focused. 
A place where you can experience the shock of new ideas, the strength of tested wisdom, radical insights, ancient understanding. Yet too often, it can also be the place that embodies the chaos of Psalm 107, a desert place, a prison, a place of sickness. Your support of campus ministry, both through your financial gifts, but especially through your prayers for the U of A and for Nate, is one way that you as a congregation meet the needs of the least of these. Yet having and supporting campus ministry doesn't absolve us of the responsibility we have of expressing our gratitude to God both liturgically and relationally in our daily lives here in Lacombe. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Our gratitude for God's deliverance of us must spill out into acts of justice and peace and love in the lives of others. We are the body of Christ. It's through us that the wonderful works of Jesus, our Redeemer, are made visible to humankind, to the least of these. Finally, the great hope of the psalm is that suffering isn't the final word. The psalm declares in no uncertain terms that no matter the cause of our need, whether sin or guilt or oppression and injustice or sickness and wandering, God's goodness and steadfast love will have the final word. This is the very reality of Calvary and Easter. There is no need that is beyond the scope of God's saving arm. If only we continue to cry out. God is making all things new. Even now we may catch a glimpse of it. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And let those who are wise give heed to these things and consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Amen. Let's respond together by singing hymn number, well, we'll sing Tell Out My Soul. And I understand that treasure seekers are dismissed at this time as well.